Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 175. I want to thank you for taking the time to join me on this episode. As we continue our reading in Understanding Biblical End Times, written by and narrated by Danny Pate. This is part six. Picking back up on page 52, we continue on. This next portion of the discussion will be dedicated to the biblical account of the rapture. The predominant view of the church at large has not always been a pre-tribulation rapture, contrary to the widespread belief among Christians today. Many supporters of a pre-tribulation rapture of those alive and dead in Christ validate that stance with the same scriptures used by those who oppose that doctrinal view. To be clear, this doctrinal perspective is not an essential part of the Christian faith that will determine true or false salvation. My reason for presenting what I believe the Bible teaches is to pursue truth, which is to seek Jesus himself, and not and and clarify what I believe to be incorrect teaching to the detriment of the church. Propping up this teaching subconsciously facilitates many to disassociate or insulate themselves and their faith from the world, not pursuing active involvement in the progression of God's kingdom. They fail to advance the impact of Christ as his followers, affecting culture and society, religious and secular. Let me also be clear that it is but God alone that builds his kingdom. We do, as the body of Christ, get to play a part in our obedience to his word, both corporately and individually. As followers of Christ and children of the kingdom of God, we should have pioneers in thinking like philosophy, science, entrepreneurship, government, social structures, and others. I am not advocating that only Christians be permitted to frame all civilized thought. Still, because we have the mind of Christ, we should be at the forefront of cutting edge and trailblazing of problem-solving, creative thinking, and discovery because of whose we are. Now that I've laid out a preamble, let's dive into some scriptural insights, learn from them, and correct some misperceptions regarding rapture doctrine. Let's establish a working definition of the rapture to move forward with a singular definition. I understand the rapture to be an event that involves the living and dead in Christ to be caught up in a singular moment to meet Jesus in the air and remain with him. This rapture occurs prior to the second coming of Christ. 
What does the Bible say about this event? One of the most textbook scriptures used in rapture theology would be in Paul's writing in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, which says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. End quote. First of all, let me point out that this passage is meant to encourage the Thessalonians, as it also does future readers. Do not permit it to be divisive. Although many can read and draw differing conclusions, it is ultimately meant to encourage us. We will always be with the Lord at this point going forward. Let us relish that reality for one moment. Some people have put forth arguments that the word rapture does not appear in the biblical text. As we read in the text, the phrase, quote, caught up in Greek is the word harpazo, which and does appear in the New Testament. The word repere appears in Latin, which produces the English for us, the word rapture. Before we had the English Bible, we had the Bible in Latin. Jerome in 405 translated the Hebrew and Greek texts of the original biblical text into Latin. From the Latin version, the first complete English language version is said to have been written by John Wycliffe in 1382. In 1525 to 1535, William Tyndale translated the New Testament and part of the Old Testament. We get our contemporary word rapture from the Latin text, repere. The teaching of being raptured is anchored strongly through this text where Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians. Many of them are finding themselves in discouragement about those who are dead. Some fear that those no longer alive will miss the return of the Lord. While Paul is encouraging these believers, he says very plainly, that, quote, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not proceed, that is, go before those who have fallen asleep, end quote. 1 Thessalonians 4.15. 
It is important to recognize that the New Testament draws no distinction between more than one, quote, coming of the Lord. To put it plainly, what Paul is detailing in this text is the second coming of the Lord and not a pre-tribulation departure of the saints, both living and dead. Suppose we challenge this rapture mentality with this biblical text. In that case, we must ask the question, if those who repent are not raptured but eventually die, is there an additional resurrection of the dead? Or further still, is it bypassed altogether for them? The rationale quickly unravels when we look biblically at what the text explicitly communicates. Bluntly, there is no rapturing out of the saints that permits them to bypass tribulation. I believe the rapture that 1 Thessalonians 4.17 speaks of is the second advent or coming of Christ that is called the coming of the Lord to both collect his bride and judge the faithless. In this day we live in, we see the ever-increasing rise of persecution, control, and dominance by government and ruling bodies. This teaching has conditioned the church not to be prepared for persecution. Many will fall away and lose faith because of the years of teaching that have become ingrained in our minds and souls that we won't see come to pass. I pray the disappointment will not dislodge the faith of those who realize this will not be an easy ride off this earth. A host of scriptures encourage us to persevere in times of trial. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Galatians 6 verse 9 says, And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Romans 5, 3 through 5 tells us, We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hebrews 12.1 compels us to, quote, run with endurance the race that is set before us. James reminds us in James 1.2-4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. End quote. This verse tells us plainly that trials produce steadfastness and that byproduct of that steadfastness perfects us, making us lack nothing. Paul encourages Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.12, If we endure, we will also reign with him, that is Christ. If we deny him, he also will deny us. 
end quote. In Romans 12.12, Paul says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, end quote. These and many more remind us of the need to persevere in testing and trials. As Christians, we will not be immune to tribulation or bypass it. Jesus himself uttered these words in John 16, 33, saying, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In our humanity, we desire to avoid difficulty and opposition. Many of us would go a different road if confrontation awaited us on the one we were traveling. In the prayer of Jesus in John 17, 15, quote, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, end quote. In John 17, 17 through 18, Jesus says, quote, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Let us make some observations in these texts. First, Jesus asks that the Father sanctify them in the truth, which he then identifies his word as truth. So we can conclude Jesus is asking the Father to sanctify us in his word. How important is the word of God, both spoken and written? Secondly, notice Jesus has sent us into the world as the Father had sent Jesus into the world. Not only does that include being in the world, doing the great things that Jesus did, but also being faithful to the word of the Father, even obedience unto death, even death on a cross. We must draw a line in the sand that says, there is no response to our Father we won't fulfill in obedience to Him. An additional text in Scripture in which many find evidence of traditional rapture doctrinal thinking is 1 Corinthians 15, 51-52, which says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. End quote. The mystery that Paul unfolds for us here in this scripture is that not everyone will die, but at the last trumpet we will all be changed. Perishable must become imperishable. Mortality will become immortality. When this occurs in the twinkling of an eye, the passage from Isaiah 25.8 will come true, which says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. I want to tie the last trumpet that Paul reveals here to Revelation 11 and the series of seven trumpet judgments concluded by the last trumpet 
sounding in Revelation 11, 15 through 19, which says, quote, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for dead for the time and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. When Paul states that the last trumpet will sound. This indicates that there will be previous sounds, previous trumpet sounds. If there is a last, there must be previous ones. There is no indication in 1 Corinthians 15, 51-52 that there is anything discussed rather than the second coming of the Lord. Note the use of the phrasing, quote, we shall all be changed. All indicates everyone, not just Christians. There is no suggestion of a sudden disappearance of Christians while the world continues in a downward spiral until it is ultimately judged in finality. Just pause to consider the wording the Bible uses and how rapture doctrine contorts Scripture to make it work for that end times doctrine. The coming of the Lord and the return of the Lord is clear language used throughout Scripture. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. End quote. This verse gives us a framework for language for a second coming. In light of rapture doctrine, the scripture of First Thessalonians four, sixteen through seventeen that we previously used would be a halfway coming because Jesus remains in the clouds and doesn't descend fully to earth. In rapture doctrine, this does not constitute a second coming. This coming is reserved for seven years after this rapture date, which carries no strong biblical evidence. Some reading or hearing this will feel serious offense when rapture teaching is challenged because it is ingrained in our thinking. A major weakness in current rapture teaching can also be identified from Matthew twenty four thirty six, which says, But concerning that day and hour, the second coming of Christ, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. End quote. 
this scripture tells us that only the Father knows the day of the second coming. If the sequence of the rapture, followed by a seven-year tribulation, followed by the coming of Christ were true, one would only need to calculate seven years, or 2,555 days from the rapture date, to know the return of the Lord. Jesus said in John 10.35, Scripture cannot be broken. If our current thinking of the rapture followed by seven years of tribulation, then the return of Christ were accurate. Scripture would be broken because anyone could know the day by calculating it before it occurred. The time of the second coming of Christ is a mystery to all, but if it's calculatable, then that means the unsaved will have insight into the mystery of God that his bride did not. Certainly not. Also, the New Testament is full of references to how the children of God look with anticipation and hope to the return of Christ. If all God's children are already gone, how could we look with anticipation and hope? As I have presented many texts and my interpretation, I do not presume that I have all the answers. Neither do I believe that the understanding that I have now may not evolve with time and exposure to the Spirit of God. I must be pliable to the Spirit. There was a time I was hesitant to make definitive statements. There was a time when I worried whether the understanding I had was the absolute truth regarding Scripture. Not to say that truth is relative, but revelation is like a multifaceted diamond. From different angles, you can see it uniquely from differing perspectives. So perhaps we could say that truth is not relative, but revelation is. I've learned that as I continue my walk with God, my understanding of what He has shown me can evolve, mature, or perhaps even redevelop. That is why we can read the Bible and at one point in our lives take from it something so unique and different compared to years later. Many of us have heard it called the living word of God. It is active and it is reading us while we read it. This concludes the first portion of our reading and in the next episode we will continue on in a frequently asked questions section of the book beginning in page 65. Thank you for joining me on this episode and we will see you on the next one. God bless. I would trade a million lifetimes for a moment here